I'd like to begin this message with a question, and it's a simple one. What's in a name? Uh, too few of us ask that question. Uh, there, there aren't a lot of us who know enough about our names. Maybe there are some of you who do. Uh, you know about your family tree and your genealogy and your history, but I would guess that a lot of us don't know enough about our names. Maybe even some of us hate our names. Some of us might be running from our names, like if we think about our family of origin or past dysfunction or past mistakes, we might want to get as far away from our names as we can. When I think of the question, what's in a name, I I think of this scene uh, with Romeo and Juliet. These two star-crossed lovers want to be together, and Juliet says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, so Romeo would were he not Romeo called. See, the Montagues and Capulets are at war with one another, and these two star-crossed lovers want to jettison their names in order to be together. Now, my name's a curious one, uh, strange juxtaposition. My first name, Jared, is Hebrew. You find that name in Genesis 5. Uh, My last name, Alcantara, is Moorish. My dad immigrated from Honduras in Central America when he was in his 20s, but it's a Moorish name. It's an Arabic word that goes all the way back to Spain. In fact, there's a town called Alcantara in Spain. Uh, During the Spanish Inquisition, the Moors had to flee Spain. They fled to uh, North Africa and then eventually immigrated to Central and South America. So you find these different families with Moorish last names. Uh, I have this uncle named Jesus, that's Spanish for Jesus. Every Hispanic person has an uncle named Jesus. Uh, But in Latin America, they keep both last names. And so my uncle Jesus married a beautiful woman named Francisca Matamoros. So they are the Alcantara Matamoros family. But here's the strange twist. Uh, Matamoros in Spanish means kill the Moors. So there is proof that Montagues and Capulets can end up together. And names are really important when you think about it, especially when we read and study the Bible. Uh, The Lord places a great amount of investment and energy in the, the names that he gives to characters in Scripture. And the Lord, when he reveals his name, it's meant for us to pay attention, to Notice, because in revealing his name, there are several names for for God in scripture, in revealing his name to us, he's telling us something about what he's like, about his nature, about his character, and also something about how he wants to relate to each of us. The same is true in our passage for this weekend. It's in Exodus 3. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to look at Exodus 3. We're going to be reading Exodus 3 verses 1 through 15. So that's where we are this weekend, Exodus 3, 1 through 15. It's the story of Moses' encounter with God. So we're in Exodus 3, and we're going to start at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. (laughs) 
Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Now, you probably understand from reading this story that there are two main characters. There's God and there's Moses, and God does most of the talking and Moses does most of the listening, and that's a good thing, by the way. Now, it's easy to fast forward and get to what this passage reveals to us about God, but I want to step back and start by asking, what does this passage reveal to us about Moses? See, Moses is hiding in Midian when we get to Exodus 3. Now, if you want a little glimpse into Moses' situation at the beginning of this chapter, let me ask you a question. Uh, Have you ever made a mistake so embarrassing, uh, so idiotic even, that were that mistake to be made public, say, to your family or to your friends or even to your church, that you would consider moving to another state? (laughs) Well, if your answer to that question is yes, then you have a window into Moses' soul. I would imagine that if your answer is yes, that you'd go back to that 13-year-old or 21-year-old or 42-year-old or 62-year-old and you would try to talk some sense into that person. See, Moses made a mistake. We read about it in Exodus 2, verse 12. There's a conflict between an Israelite and an Egyptian and Moses gets in the middle and Moses ends up killing the Egyptian in the conflict and 
It's such a controversy that Pharaoh wants to exact the death penalty on Moses. And Moses gets out of Egypt as fast as he can. That's how he gets to Midian. It's there that he meets this man named Jethro and meets his daughter Zipporah. And Moses marries Zipporah and they have a son named Gershom. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 3, Moses is now a shepherd of sheep. In Egypt, to be a shepherd was to be considered to have an undignified profession. So Moses is a shepherd of the sheep in the deserts of Midian, and we read in verse 1 that he's on the far side of the wilderness. You know, I wonder if that detail is in there to try to communicate to us that Moses is about as far as possible from what God wants for him. He's off not only in the wilderness, he's on the far side of the wilderness. You know, it's been said that the most painful gap in human existence is the gap between the person that we want to be and the person that we are. Moses has pitched his tent in that gap. Perhaps you understand what that's like to pitch your tent there. Perhaps you understand what it's like to feel like your past sins or past mistakes will come back to visit you. Or even haunt you. Perhaps you know what it's like to feel like you don't have what it takes to be the woman or man that God has called you to be. Perhaps you know what it's like to worry that if people ever really knew you, the real person that you are, then they would reject you. That's what it's like to pitch your tent on the far side of the wilderness. You know, our, our fears, our worries, our past mistakes can be so gripping toward us that they cause us to forget the gospel, that we forget that we have indeed been forgiven at the cross. We uh, forget that even if we've made mistakes, that it doesn't disqualify us from what God has called us to do or be. You know, I was reading a story not too long ago by Jack Handy. Jack Handy's a humorist. He wrote a book called uh, Deep Thoughts, but he also wrote a book called Fuzzy Memories. And he tells this story in Fuzzy Memories. This is it. There used to be this bully who would demand my lunch money every day. Since I was smaller, I would give it to him. Then I decided to fight back. I started taking karate lessons, but then the karate lesson guy said that I had to start paying him $5 a lesson, so I just went back to paying the bully. (laughs) Here's the thing. So often, when given the opportunity to allow God to redirect our steps, to allow us to live in freedom, to allow us to truly believe and trust what the gospel says, So often, instead of doing that, we just go back to paying the bully. But there's hope for Moses. And I believe there's hope for us. Here's what we don't know. Uh, We don't know whether or not Moses has given up on God when this story begins in Exodus 3. But here's what we do know. God has not given up on Moses. We can't say for sure if Moses has forgotten about God. It's been years since he was back in Egypt. But here's what we do know. God has not forgotten about Moses. You see, this passage reveals so much to us, not only about God and his relation to Moses, but God and his relation to us. 
So if you pick it up at those beginning verses, Moses leads the flock to the far side of the wilderness, to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a burning bush. And for the next couple of verses, we read about fire and burning. Five different times in those verses, we read about this bush that is burning but not consumed. See, God is willing to bend the laws of nature so that he can get Moses' attention. Moses wonders, he says, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight. Literally the phrase is, this great sight, why the bush is burning up but not consumed. And then we start to see just what God wants to communicate to Moses about himself. What I believe he wants to communicate to Moses or communicate to us about himself. So here's a few things, just some observations that I think will give us strength and confidence. Here's one of them. Even in your wandering, God still cares for you. Even in your wandering, God still cares for you. Now how do we know that God cares for Moses? I want you to look at how this story unfolds in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, God said. Now this is important in ancient Hebrew culture. To call someone's name twice was really significant. This is what a commentator named Doug Stewart writes. In ancient Hebrew culture, addressing someone by saying his or her name twice was a way of expressing endearment. That is affection and friendship. Moses would have understood immediately that he was being addressed by someone who loved him and was concerned about him. So even just in communicating Moses' name, the Lord communicates his care. The Lord explains to Moses that he must take off his sandals for the place where he's standing is holy ground. But even there, as God communicates his holiness, the Lord is communicating his holiness in the context of relationship. Ultimately, he is protecting and preserving Moses. But there's another clue in verse 4. There's two names for God in verse 4. The first one is the Lord. That's the first couple of words. And then later on in the verse, there's the name God. Now God in Hebrew is Elohim, which means the God above all gods, the one true God. But that name, the Lord, which shows up at the beginning of verse 4, means to communicate that he's the God of the covenant, the one who is in relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, the one who is enthroned above is also the one who wants to be in relationship with us and cares about us. Think about it for a moment. The God who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, that God cares about you. The God who's surrounded by cherubim and seraphim and angels and archangels, that God cares about you. That God knows your name and my name. That God wants to be in relationship with you and with me. David puts it this way in Psalm 139. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was woven together. When I was made in the secret place, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. See, even if we're wandering on the far side of the wilderness, God still cares about us. He calls 
your name and my name to himself. But there's another thing. So even in your wandering, God still cares for you. Uh, There's also a challenge. It's both a challenge and a promise. And it's this. Even in your self-doubt, God still calls you. Anybody here have self-doubt sometimes? Anybody feel a lack of confidence sometimes? Anyone feel disqualified sometimes? Because you know that that gap that you live in is the gap between the person that you want to be and the person that you are. Well, if that's you, then you understand what it was like for Moses. See, the Lord calls to Moses, and Moses is afraid, we read, and why wouldn't he be? He was not expecting to encounter the one true God when he was out on the far side of the wilderness. But what we see unfold is Moses making a series of excuses, first in chapter 3 and then in chapter 4, about why he's not God's man for the job. So it starts in verse 11. See, first God calls him in verse 10 and says, Go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. We read in verse 11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? That's a legitimate question. Moses is being humble, uh, being polite even, to recognize that there might be someone more qualified than him, especially after what happened in Egypt. But it keeps happening over and over again in God's encounter with Moses. It happens again in verse 13. Moses says, well, what if I go and they ask, what's the Lord's name? And I won't know the answer. And so what do I do then? If you skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 1, Moses says, uh, they're not going to believe me. Uh, what, if, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Then again, in chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says, I've never been eloquent. I don't know how to speak. And then again in chapter 4, verse 13, Moses finally quits making polite excuses and says, Lord, please pardon your servant. Would you send someone else? <laughs> Some of you are familiar with that Isaiah 6 text where Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Moses says, here I am, send somebody else. Now before we rush to judgment on Moses, I think it's important to understand that we do the same thing. We say, Lord, I just need to get my house in order. I just need to get my family in order. I just need to arrive at financial security. Lord, I just need to get certain things in place before I say yes. Lord, if you only knew how much stress I was under, uh, Lord, if you only knew what I had done from the past, then you wouldn't be calling me into what you're calling me to do. I mean, we'll come up with any excuse. Lord, I need to shampoo my carpet this weekend. Lord, I, I, need, I need to do the siding on my house. It's a beautiful weekend. Please send someone else. Here's the thing. Um, so often we want clarity before we'll move. But clarity is something that God has not promised us. When the Lord called Abraham and said, go to the place I will show you, It was a clear command, but the details weren't exactly clear to Abraham. When the Lord called Jonah to preach 
to the Ninevites, he said, go preach and you'll see what happens. That's not a lot of clarity. When the Lord called Noah to build an ark in the middle of the desert, that's not a lot of clarity. When Jesus said, come follow me to his disciples, inviting them to cast down their nets, the command was clear, but the details weren't. See, so often what we want is clarity in order to move, but what we need is trust. I remember hearing a story about Mother Teresa and a man by the name of John Cavanaugh, who's a Jesuit philosopher. Uh, In 1975, when Cavanaugh was in his 20s, he went to India for a gap year. Uh, He was trying to discern whether or not he would pursue academia or whether or not he would pursue a ministry to the poor. So he spent an entire year in India. He wrote Mother Teresa a letter and asked if he could spend his final month with her at the House of the Dying in Calcutta. So that was a particular house uh, supervised by the Sisters of Charity where people who were close to death could receive care and attention and prayer. Uh, When he arrived, he noticed that Mother Teresa could get through to those who were dying in a way that no one else on the staff could. And so the year was transformative, or the month with her was transformative for him. And as he came toward the end of his time, Mother Teresa had a conversation with him And she asked him how she could pray for him. And he said, I'd like you to pray for clarity. And she said, no. She was a strong woman, Mother Teresa. She refused. She said that she would not pray for clarity, this is Kavanaugh, because she said what I needed was trust. He told her that he always assumed that she had clarity all the time, knowing who she was, what she was supposed to be doing with her life. And she responded to him by saying, I have never had clarity. All I have had is trust. See, it's so important for you and I to understand that God may not give us all the clarity we need or want or hope for. Nevertheless, he's still calling us to step out, to trust, and to believe that he has our best interests in mind, to be willing even to take holy risks for God. See, God sees enough good in us God sees enough hope for us that he's willing to call even us, even if we don't feel confident, even if we don't feel like we have what it takes. So we know that even in our wandering, God cares for us, even in our lack of self-confidence, even our self-doubt, God still calls us. But there's one more thing. Even in your weakness... God still comes for you. I want you to notice verses 7 through 9, which I skipped over earlier, but want to return to. The Lord speaks and says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Now, this isn't the first time this pattern appears. If you look back in chapter 2, verse 24, we see that God heard their cries and was concerned about them. 
Now let's take a step back for a moment because so often we miss this. We believe in a God who hears our cries and is concerned about us. In Jesus Christ, we have one who we read in Scripture was familiar with sorrows, acquainted with grief. In the midst of your cries, in the midst of your affliction, look at verse 9, the cry of the Israelites has reached me. You see, there is a God who hears your cries. He hears the cries of your broken family. He hears the cries of your chronic condition, of your lapse from addiction. He hears the cries of your divorce. And he's concerned about you. See, the one who is the God above all and encircled above the circle of the earth, that God says in this text that he hears your cries and my cries, that he's concerned about you And about me. Notice what happens in verse 8. The Lord speaks and says, I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. There was a promise that God made to Jacob way back in Genesis 46 verse 4. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again. See, the promise that God made to Jacob is the promise he's fulfilling through Moses. See, even though we live in a world where people break their promises, God does not break his promises. God says, I've come down to deliver my people and to bring them up again. How do we know that God is willing to come down? All we need to do is look to Jesus God, in Jesus Christ, comes down and rescues us from our slavery to sin and death. God, in Jesus Christ, bridges the gap between heaven and earth. God, in Jesus Christ and in his cross, brings us hope and new life and reconciliation and redemption. God comes down. I think of something Gardner Taylor used to say. Gardner Taylor used to say that Jesus was willing to be time-trapped, death-eligible, pain-capable for you and for me. He comes down. He comes to us even in our weakness. And Moses was at a time of weakness, wasn't he? As we read... The verses that follow these verses, we see these two beautiful statements from God. First in verse 12, when Moses says, who am I? You know how God answers? He says, I will be with you. Then Moses asks, well, if people ask, what's your name? What shall I say to them? And the Lord responds, I am who I am. Let's start with that last one, and then we'll get to the first one. When God says, I am who I am, he's saying that I was and I am and I will be. Uh, He's saying that I was there before uh, the creation came into existence. I I was there before time began to run and the sun began to shine. I've always been there. I am who I am. My friends in the black church like to say, God was before was was. 
(laughs) I am that I am, he says. But he also says, I am with you. You see, the God who is above you and beyond you is also the God who is with you. One of the titles for Jesus is the title Emmanuel. It's a prophecy in Isaiah 7, and it means God with us. Let me just ask you a few questions before we close. One of them is, if you really believed what God says about himself and what God says about you, what would change in your life? And I asked that question to myself. What would change if I really, really leaned into this truth about who God is and who I am in light of who God is? Another one. uh, If you believe that God is no longer able to use you, then is that your problem or God's problem? And then the third question. What would it look like for you to take holy risks for God? to go to the place that he will show you? What would it look like for you to step out and trust, perhaps again? You know, when I was uh, teaching at Princeton, I was a teaching fellow and uh, I had supervising professors, but I had a chance to be in the classroom and be with lots of seminarians. And there was one seminarian who I remember by the name of Earl Jones. Earl grew up in Brooklyn, grew up in the black church, Uh, but also was a prodigal son, had a prodigal son story and was hustling in Brooklyn. And the Lord called him back to faith and called him back to really his call on his life to be a minister of the gospel. Earl was just one of those seminarians who was just happy to be there. I mean, this is just a little trade secret. Some seminarians are cranky. I have them in class. Uh, Some of them are just cranky all the time. But Earl was one of those people who was just happy to be alive, happy that God had called him, happy for every moment he had at class and with his friends. Here's another trade secret. Sometimes seminarians get discouraged and they wonder if they've really heard from God and they wonder if God has really called them. And Earl was just a constant encourager. There's something that he would say to his fellow students. He said it in class. Uh, It always stuck with me. You know what he would say? He would say to them, even if you're not sure about you, God is sure about you. God is still sure about you. See, God's answer to the question, who am I, is I am with you. So you may say, I'm too young, I'm, I'm too old. You may worry, I, I don't have enough money, my family's too messed up. But the truth is, God is still sure about you and me. You may say, I don't have what it takes. I'm I'm not eloquent. I don't, I'm not able to do what God is calling me to do. See, our capacities are not what's most crucial in this context and in the context of Moses. What is most crucial is that God is still sure about you and me. See, the one who is above you and beyond you has also promised to be with you. And because he has, you can say yes to him. 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are so sure about us, that you're willing to come down, that you love us too much to let us go. Perhaps we're wandering this morning. Perhaps we're filled with self-doubt. Perhaps we're feeling weak, disqualified, unable to say yes. We thank you that you care for us, that you come to us, and yes, that you call us. Help us to be people who are willing to say yes. Help us to be people who are willing to go where you call us to go, to do what you call us to do, and to be the women and men that you call us to be. Thank you for your grace and your mercy which enables and empowers us to do what we could never do on our own. Thank you for Jesus and for the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.